I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air nationally across the United States and in Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, our main event conversation, the prison profit pipeline, making billions from being behind bars. Hot topic one, black girls is a verb, languaging our brilliance. Hot topic two, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, the business of sexual assault and silence. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Joan Morgan and Manifa Bandele. Joan Morgan is a veteran cultural critic, critically acclaimed author of When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, My Life as a Hip Hop Feminist, creator of Emily Jane and a PhD student of African American Studies at New York University. Manifa Bandele is a senior campaign director of MomsRising.org, a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, and is on the steering committee of Communities United for Police Reform. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Let's start with our main event, the prison profit pipeline, the prison profiteers. The United States is the world's biggest incarcerator. Right now, there are 2.4 million people in American prisons. That number has grown by 500% in the past 30 years. The United States has 5% of the world's population, and yet it holds 25% of the world's incarcerated. In 2012, one in every 108 adults was in prison or in jail, and one in 28 children in the U.S. had a parent behind bars. Over 1.5 million children have a parent in prison, More than 8.3 million children have a parent under correctional supervision, and more than one in five of these children is under five years old. Focus in on people of color and those numbers skyrocket. For example, in Illinois, African Americans make up 58% of those in prison, yet they're just 15% of the overall population. In Chicago, there is something called million dollar blocks, where researchers found the state spent a million dollars over a five-year period to incarcerate residents from a single city block, many of them located in low-income African-American neighborhoods. Women are the fastest-growing segment of the incarcerated population, increasing at nearly double the rate of men since 1985. There are more than one million women behind bars or under the control of the criminal justice system. Black women represent 30% of all incarcerated women in the U.S., although they represent 13% of the female population generally. It's been called the prison industrial complex for a long time, and it is the industrial part we're going to focus on. Prison as industry, specifically the companies who turn a serious profit from folk who are locked up. 
Here's how the money breaks down. It costs over $20,000 per year for an incarcerated person. Private prisons are a $70 billion industry. 65% of private prison contracts require an occupancy guarantee. So that means states have to have a certain number of people in prison, typically between 80 and 90% of occupancy, or they pay companies for empty beds. So that means making money becomes the primary incentive for locking people up. Prison as punishment, prison as a place for rehabilitation is cast aside for prison as profit. Take a listen to this video called Justice from Brave New Films that explores this issue. There's a profit incentive to incarcerating people. There are some companies who are showing big profits who will tell you that things have never been better. Global Telling takes advantage of people who are so vulnerable. The father's in prison, it costs $17 to call dad for 15 minutes. Corizon makes money off sick prisoners by denying care. It's as simple as that. The Geo Group is able to make amazing profits by not doing their job, by not keeping facilities clean, by going cheap. The bail bondsman industry is taking advantage of people in jail by charging unbelievable amounts of money to get out. Cops seize assets by merely suspecting someone of illegal behavior. And so your car, or whatever possessions you have on your person, can be taken away. CCA is moving to make prison sentences longer and harsher and making laws easier to break. America has 2.2 million incarcerated people. It's a statistic that we should be ashamed of. There are six companies making millions of dollars from this prison profit pipeline. Let's name them. One, Global Tellink. Two, Corizon. Three, the bail industry. Four, Law Enforcement for Asset Forfeiture. Five, Corrections Corporation of America. Six, the GEO Group. These six companies are making huge amounts for how much they charge for calls the incarcerated make and receive from loved ones from the deeply prejudicial bail system, from the laws that allow police to seize property where they suspect crimes have been committed, and from the nature of private prisons themselves. In Illinois, a campaign was launched to curb the advantages telephone companies get by charging huge amounts of money via call charges to those locked up and their loved ones trying to stay connected through prison bars via cell phones. State legislators have created the Family Connections Bill to put an end to the $13 million in kickbacks from phone calls for those incarcerated and their families. So that's one resolution, a legal one. Let's talk the prison profit pipeline, how society, community and family pays as prisons profit. Monifa Bandele, let me start with you. Sure, yes. I'm so glad we're discussing this topic. Because as we speak, in addition to the fact that there are corporations and individuals making millions, and of course, as we see altogether, billions of dollars off of incarcerating men, women, children, we're also seeing a slew of deaths while incarcerated. 
people are suffering from severe chronic illnesses, health neglect, abuse, and it's astronomical. So in addition to locking up people, which of course destroys communities economically, um, destroys families mentally and emotionally, there's also the physical impact on people from being incarcerated. Uh, just this week, uh, a very well-known prisoner in New York State named Abdul-Majid, who'd been a political prisoner and was a former Black Panther who was locked up under very suspicious uh, uh, several court cases that were very suspicious and many people, including myself, believed him to be framed by the government, mysteriously died in prison. And it happened so much that last year we saw that hashtag, if I die while incarcerated, you know, because it's so it happened so much that people have to say, you know, I didn't kill myself, I didn't commit suicide, you know, I'm not sick. And here was a, a very healthy grandfather in his 60s who mysteriously um, died um, trying to seek some medical uh, attention. One of the companies you named, Corizon, is the one that provides health care services for so many prisons. And there are several lawsuits actually right now against Corizon in Pennsylvania. So I think that's a very important piece that not only are families and communities and individuals devastated, it's a, it's a death sentence to be incarcerated in the United States because of the widespread abuse and health neglect. Joan Morgan. I'm really happy that we're discussing this, um, too. I think one of the things that really needs to be brought to the forefront is that we tend to look at the prison industrial um, complex as a modern construct, right, um, particularly with the escalation of numbers um, that you uh, just read, this alarming escalation that's taken place really um, in the last, what, 10 10 years, 10, 15 years. And I think that that's true and valid, but the thing that we have to look at is that the United States has been deeply invested in um, putting black bodies <laughs> in jail to uh, compensate for a deficit of labor, of, of labor. That has been going on for an extremely long time. I mean, it's actually been going on since immediately after emancipation, where you kind of have these freed, in quotation mark, black folk, and in the labor that used to be done by slavery um, now has to be done by somebody. And so this is where you get those chain gangs, you know, those images of like black and white stripes and black men striped to, um, chained together. You could, and women also, you could be picked up then for anything. Um, and you were sentenced to hard labor. And there's a reason for that. So the prison system here has always had an economic incentive to, um, to put people of color in jail because it has labor and profit to make. And that, that has been long accepted for as long as black people have been free in this country. So I think when you couple that with the propaganda that um, of criminalization of, you know, of, of race, that some people are more likely to commit crimes, that some people are, you know, they're, they're in jail because this is a race of people that is perpetually criminal, the propaganda, the racist propaganda that accompanies that almost gives this a pass because what happens is that there is just this pervasive mentality um, among many people, not just white folk, that if you're in jail, you did something to be there. 
and so this these are we're not really seeing a massive pushback because in some ways this is a forgotten and discarded population even though we know that the numbers mean that that can't possibly be the case that there are too many people there who have families and connections outside for it to be this small forgotten population and so i think we also have to address the stigma of shame of having a loved one that's um incarcerated, because I also think that that probably has a lot to do with why we're not organizing around these issues, that we're not giving it um, a face. And, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think that we have to look at this particular moment and those numbers, but we really, really, really have to trace it back to where we're coming from historically and call the prison system out because this it has been a way to jail and imprison black people that basically just substituted slavery. That's so, so um, powerful. And that um, connecting the historical context with an economic reality within this modern day moment. And it makes me, you know, appreciate Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow all the more, that amazing New York Times bestseller book she wrote that really broke down uh, and gave us more and more of this historical context and showed us that path between economics and uh, race and gender and history. Um, And so I really take that point, Joan. I think that's really important. On that stigma piece, I think particularly as we've seen such a massive escalation, when I saw the numbers um, with women that the fastest growing group of the incarcerated, I I literally checked them three times because I thought, how can they be that fast, that high, um, this speed? And Coupling that with the way in which the private prison system basically needs a full house to make money. So then it becomes what's what's kind of low, low hanging fruit that you can throw people in in jail for the kinds of periods of time that enable them to basically get a return on the investment. Um, and I think about the this so-called drug war, um, but putting um, incarcerating women for having low, you know, tiny amounts of marijuana, even though we've seen a decriminalization of marijuana that is again become industry for a group of people that is still seeing another group of people incarcerated for ridiculously long periods of time as these companies seek to figure out for them TBL, the bottom line. That's it. Um, and I really, you know, I think about the economics of stigma. Not just the emotional cost of stigma, stigma, but the economics of it. Because thinking about these private prisons and the way corporations work, that stigma serves their economics. It really um, protects our shame when I think particularly women or mothers are incarcerated, because I think we have a whole industry of some kind of code of pride when young, particularly young black men are incarcerated. Um, But the stigma that applies, particularly when women and mothers are incarcerated, really serves to build and protect and shroud the private prison system. Um, I think again about Sandra Bland, for example, and it was the, 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 the back and forth around um, bail, the miscommunication around bail, but the bail system, which the bail industry, which in itself is deeply criminal, is responsible for the deaths and the killings of so many um, um, black folk, but is in itself this important economically um, devastating element that upholds this corporation in a particular way. And so then it makes me want to ask this question. 
how do we um, engage the stigma, understanding the numbers and the economics, which is the least sexy part of activism? But in this moment, seeing the way these numbers are flying up and the billions of dollars that are being made could potentially be a really impactful way to um, go into dealing with the prison, prison industrial um, complex so that it's um, black shame should not matter so much. Very long hashtag, but you get what I'm trying to say. What do you think, Monifa? I mean, we really have to focus on overall anti-blackness and the larger movement for black lives. Because as long as black lives don't matter, um, both broadly as well as within our communities, it's very difficult to build the will to change these systems. Um, When you talk about the rate of women incarcerated, two-thirds of those one million women who are under some level of criminal justice supervision here in the United States are mothers. And another practice common with Corizon is shackling pregnant women during labor, mm-hmm. which we've seen lead to uh, the death of mothers and the death of infants. Um, recently, some activists in Pennsylvania have, are working to change it there with Corizon um, prisons there. But, you know, it, the, the, the roadblock, the challenges is, like you said, that shame, how people are dehumanized who are incarcerated. So you're, it, it's a dehumanization of a community of people who are already dehumanized, right? <laughs> so you have certain segments of the community who are like, who are like, well, at least I'm better than this one. I mean, it's almost like the same right. thing that you see in, in, in the country overall when you're dealing with working class and poor white people, right, who will vote against their own interests at times because just the racial stratification gives them a certain level of humanist humanism in their minds because it's like, well, at least I'm above this group, right? And so within our community, we have to really focus on the fact that all black lives matter. We can't break off the incarcerated. We can't break off people who are diseased by um, drug addiction, you know, or who are our queer members of our community, you know, but we are in a, com- we're in a larger society that does that regularly, right? And we're already marginalized. We cannot, one, afford to do that, right? politically, economically, socially, right, but also it is wrong. Um, And so that's part of the work, part of the healing work, as to when you talk about your emotional justice work, because every time we disassociate or we don't care about members of our community, we're killing a part of ourselves, physically, actually. You know, we see ourselves in one another. And so if we are not loving and if we're not caring, it is really a reflection of how we see ourselves. So the anti-blackness that we're fighting is without and within. And so this is, this is that why this work is so humongous and multi-layered, right? Because we're literally like in the trenches fighting for justice while repairing. The he- we're healing the damage and the harm that has been done from centuries of living in this anti-blackness toxic you know, world and, and communities and countries. So it, it's, a, it's a, and women play, I feel, the most critical role in that and have for decades of healing, of putting forth um, images. We just saw Black Girls Rock air nationally on TV last night, trying to counter that. That's very revolutionary to really counter this idea that we are less than, that we are dehumanized, because just even an inkling of that type of feeling, of that type of emotion, leads to these larger 
political ramifications and economic ramifications because it impacts our ability to fight and rise up for all of our members. We get stuck with uh, respectability politics. We get stuck in how we individually can position ourselves to be equal to what is, you know, American. So I think that this type of language, the type of movement that we see emerging now is really the silver bullet in pulling all of that together. So we can't just fight on criminal justice reform. We can't just look at the prison industrial complex without fighting this larger anti-blackness that we're just kind of sucked in right now. Tim? You know, I am... 200% 200% there with Monifa around this, uh, making a push for understanding how this fits into the larger project of, of anti-blackness. Um, here's my, my concern, um, and we know that, that this disproportionately affects people of color um, and, and certainly women of color. But I am, like, waiting for the day that, you know, what happens, like, when this issue gets public visibility and it gets public visibility and public concern because, you know, some well-intended white person decides to do a doc about, you know, a kind of model white girl prisoner (laughs) who kind of embodies all of these things. And then we see the issue, um, you know, national concern is, is, is now, like, abundant because it has a particular face. And so while I definitely think this is deeply rooted in anti-blackness um, and allyship is deeply problematic, um, you know, I, I feel like there has to be a way, um, particularly when we're looking at the issue of, black women and, I mean, of women and mothers um, that occupy the, the brutality of what that does, the incarceration does to families. And, you know, it's a drag because we end up often, like, you know, just beating down the same door over and over again, beating the same dead horse. But in the, in a, I don't want to see that happen. There has to be a way to um, ally those concerns and show really what the face of that look like looks like because it's not just black and Latino women. It is often um, less often, but it's it's when it does happen, it is poor white women. And even if they don't know what their interests are, we certainly know where the correlations are in terms of class. And I don't have suggestions because I already know that I'm opening up the potential for you know an is show. But I also know that I don't want to see that like white girl documentary. <laughs> It's so true. It's true. Pandora's box. It's so true. Oh my God, Joan opened it up. What will we do? No, no. And you hit the nail on the head because look at what's happening with the emergence of heroin, mm-hmm. right? Because the heroin addict is a different demographic. Generally, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we all are. There's plenty of white people on crack, you know. But in a general sense, there's an image that people think of um, when they think of who's on heroin. Um, the mess. Addiction. So you see this whole different trend of like, this is such a disease. Oh my God, we've got to help. <laughs> you need treatment. We, these laws are funny. are draconian. These people need treatment. You know, and it's exactly what Joan said is because the images that come to their mind are images that they identify with, and they're just like, oh my God, we got it. You know, it's in many ways we're like the canary in the coal mine. What's bad for us is bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know. But we're we're expendable. 
Right. That's the difference with the canary. Right. You can go in, you can die. Oh, my God, this is bad. Everybody get out the mine, you know. So that is the danger, and we see it. We see it now with heroin. I've seen such passionate speeches around drug reform from, like, conservative white policymakers who have people, uh, children who are addicted to heroin in their district. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then for me, um, you will know I do this work, Emotional Justice, which is about how we uh, engage our emotionality in different ways in these issues. So I think about the emotionality of our economics, even as it relates to what you both highlighted, because what if we engage in a different kind of coalition building? Um, because absolutely, 100% right, the idea that, and I know, I've seen them a gazillion times, that I call them the like heroin ads, which are really about reform, treatment, decriminalization. There's a complete empathetic uh, um, activism element when it comes to um, heroin. And the issue, both historically and politically, is tough on crime, represents tough on black folk, represents a political vote-winning reality, and has been used by both Republicans and Democrats to kind of galvanize a particular base in ways that are devastating to um, black communities, to black families, and we know those stories. So I think about the way, for example, historically with apartheid, the part of the fight became about the economics of this and the going after the companies in very targeted, focused, particular ways and seeking to build coalitions based on the economics of the thing, where we know there are so many organizations doing work around um, different elements of the, the activism, what you said, Monifa, about not shackling pregnant women, which is the definition of barbarism, to shackle a pregnant woman giving birth to a child to a bed. You just don't even have language. Um, and so I wonder about that. I wonder about thinking about the historical evolution of movements globally and the role choosing an economics path plays in being able to change some of the dynamics in coalition building and some bringing those who are have been reluctant while calling themselves allies to a part of the table that feels more comfortable that feels um, easier for them to be at but helps those who are paying the price the most which is you know as as you said money for it's poor and you said joan poor white, working white folk, but also predominantly um, African-American, black, Latina, not just African-American, black folk across the board, immigrant women, African women, Caribbean women, right across the board. And so I think about that. I, I think about the emotional currency of an economics approach and whether as a, an activist angle, it's been enough of a push um, and how that might shift this dynamic that we're talking about if we were to try that as a major, major push. Because as Monifa said, the trenches are deep. They are deep. And we're deep in them, digging deeper, trying to get out. Do you know what I mean? Because the numbers are moving in the wrong direction so fast. And people are digging, and they're digging hard, but the numbers are flying forward because the economic visuals are so devastatingly powerful so devastatingly powerful locked up in so many different kinds of ways locked up and they won't let me out when i hit my cell block know the threat me out i'm steady trying to find the motive why do what i do freedom ain't getting no closer no matter how far i go my car is 
That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Joan Morgan and Monifa Bandele. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for the first of our hot topics, black girl as a verb, on creating vocabulary to reimagine and revision ourselves. How do you language yourself as a black girl or woman in a society when names have been given to you from a white supremacist vantage point? How do you bloom in places, nations, societies where you are not watered? Creating language that articulates your particular brand of brilliance is crucial, and that is exactly what is happening across social media using hashtags, black women and girls are doing just that. Black girl magic, black girl joy, black girls rock. In a feature article headlined, Black Girl is a Verb, a new American grammar book, scholar and writer, Dr. Brittany Cooper, writes about this creating language to name the brilliance, fire, power, beauty of black girls and women globally. So let's talk, Black Girl is a Verb, creating language to sustain, support, inspire, and direct you. John Morgan. I love Brittany's piece and because I think that, you know, black folk are always really creative with language. Like, you cannot find any – we've – I was on the subway the other day and just looking at how different ad speak is, um, that we've moved from a time where ads were basically expected to be in a kind of standard American English to a – you know, the language of commercialization that's considered hip, um, that's considered um, hip, progressive, like of the moment is deeply, deeply 
influenced by what we saw happen in hip-hop. So this idea um, of black women languaging themselves is not just a feel-good moment, but, you know, when we language ourselves, we want to stop other people from uh, languaging us in ways that, I mean, they're still going to do it, but we don't have to take it to heart. We develop a counter-narrative. But we also end up seeing, you know, the way that our language actually influences other people's language and the things they kind of say. So there's something very powerful for me from, um, you know, this period of time where we we heard way too many white people uh, talking about girlfriend and rolling their neck to languaging something as, like, black girl's rock or black girl's magic because it's ours, and it's not easy to appropriate that. Um, the other thing that I, I think is really genius about it, um, as a scholar uh, and someone that is concerned with kind of how our stories are archived, I think that this particular social media moment and these hashtags is, you know, we have to call this what it is. It's also creating archive. You can be having a day where you are in pain or feeling like kind of blue or the world's news about uh, black folk is just too devastating, and click on the hashtag Black Girl Joy or Black Girl's Magic on Instagram or Twitter and be flooded with images around the world of black women being magical and black women being happy and black being just utterly fly. And we've never had that before. And so I think that, you know, when I'm watching Black Girls Rock and I look at the genius and the brilliance of an Amanda Stenberg, I realize that she is a black girl who is growing up in the middle of all of this. And it's an incredibly empowering time. How beautiful is that? Monifa Bandele. Yes, it truly is. Um, the images uh, are, you know, we just didn't have this plethora of images. At the same time, the, the counter-images, the counter-narrative to our joy, to our beauty, to our brilliance has also increased <laughs> a hundredfold, right? So while we gear and direct these images at our daughters and our young women, you know, it's almost, you know, I feel like it's like, um, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, because the, the images, to the contrary, are constantly flying at their heads. Um, there was just a gap ad um, this week that was trending in social media because, you know, there was a black girl there in the ad who was used as an armrest for the white girl model and who just looked like, had like a sad look on her face where everyone else is like joyous and doing a acrobatic move and smiling. And, you know, the one black girl is like the, you know, the armrest of the, of the taller uh, white girl model. And so these images you know, whether Disney for our smaller children. So it's, it's even, it's so critical now more than ever that we amp up all of the pretty periods, all of the, all of these campaigns that we have going because really the war in us has intensified with this kind of 24 hour media cycle <clears throat> where all girls and especially our girls are, have a lot of screen time. There's ads constantly bombarded at them you know, it's it's really, really, really unbelievable. That's why Black Girls Rock is so important. But what do we do um, with that uh, appropriation, the cultural appropriation that Joan talked about? You know, how do we fight that? We've pushed up this counter-narrative. We educate our girls, you know, but we, we're going to have to continue to get into these spaces of power. We have to continue to call out things like that ad, in, that gap ad, you know, and kind of like expose it 
for what it is. You know, I love forms like this. I love all of Joan's writing because it's almost like I, I can see the look in my own two daughters' eyes. I have two teenage girls when something is exposed. And they're like, wow. Like, I, I felt that way when I saw that image, you know, but reading this sister, you know, reading um, Brittany Cooper or Joe Morgan write about it, and I'm just like, this is just totally exposed. You know, and now I also feel confident that when someone speaks on this image, I can be like, no, let me tell you what that is. You know, that's what the Amanda video did. You know, you saw teenage girls in their school saying, cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation. <laughs> and it's beautiful. You know, yeah. it's almost like giving them their sword and shield. Mm. That's we're giving them these images, but when we also expose the attack, it's giving them their own defense mechanisms. And so we, it's good that we continue to do that and we ramp that up too. What I really um, love about this is one of the challenges I think we have with the need for the amount and kind of activism that comes from the very beginning of black folks' time on the shores um, of America, being enslaved Africans, being in this constant series of fights and battles for a humanity. So what I love about this moment is the idea of standing in your absolute magic and power and brilliance and simply calling it yours. There's no suggestion of sharing it. You know, it's black girl's rock. It's black girl joy. It's black girl magic. It's the idea that, that Serena, as I said, and, and, and uh, Dr. Cooper wrote, is a verb which means to slay, to conquer, to literally body the game because you're that fly. To Taraji, as Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay created. Taraji meaning to support after watching Taraji B. Henson support Viola Davis in her Emmy-winning moment. And the idea that your very being becomes action in and of itself so that not just having to defend the attack, but that you are in creation. You, your body, yourself, your name, your being are in a creation that makes your joy possible. And I just love the power of what that means for black girls. Like listening to you, Manifa, talk about your two teenage girls and knowing that things are being called out in a particular way, but also knowing, as John said, like I'm sitting here in Accra, Ghana, and I think about having a challenging day and I do exactly the same thing. Whether you're in Accra, Ghana or Lagos, Nigeria or in uh, Abidjan, in Egypt, in London, in Brooklyn, in Detroit, in Chicago, we can all have a, be having a black girl bad day moment and every Everybody can click simultaneously on Black Girl Joy or Black Girl Magic and find themselves, find a global community of beauty that actually 100% belongs to you. And I think even the thing about the, the, the nature of the counter narrative reminds me that um, at root and heart that we are a people who are creators and that for I think about that gap ad. And it reminds me, it's like the 21st century visual equivalent of saying the black woman is the mule of the world. But she, she literally is not. So you try and create images to keep putting her in a place where she's extracting herself from. And so absolutely, yes, to Manifa's point, the calling out is really, really necessary. But then absolutely, yes, to the idea, as you said, Joan, being a scholar and recognizing this as archive, not minimalizing it or... Uh, making it smaller than it is because in a moment where death and devastation can be experienced in real time and in repeat time again and again, 
it's never been more important because of the power of social media and the, the ability to reach you in really, really powerful ways to find a joy that is yours, to name and claim it as such and be able to find it again and again in all these different ways. So it is, I mean, literally magic, magical. Oh, I just wanted to add and also telling our stories. There's a Octavia Spencer actress has a video on YouTube where she portrays Harriet Tubman. I don't know if you guys have seen this, <laughs> you know, but it's a piece of history uh, that, you know, every, every child has heard the name Harriet Tubman, but she portrays her as a military strategist, leader, and spy, you know, and leading a raid. On a, and it's blowing. Every time my daughters have girls come over, they're like, I want to show you this video on Harriet Tubman. I mean, if you imagine young girls wanting to see this acted out, it's because when we tell the story of Harriet Tubman, right, she's a goddess. She's Serena Williams, you know, escaped from the plantation as opposed to how it's being told to them. Yes. You know, my Harriet Tubman will be dating Idris Elba. I'm just saying, just to add that. Well, yeah, because her husband was like 20-something years younger than her, so that's about right. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we don't tell that story. We don't tell that Harriet either. Right? That's really powerful. And that was, that was, Har- that was husband it. number two. Oh, really? Harriet's dude was a younger man? Uh, much younger, yes. like 20 years. Yes. 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 Really? Bye. I Let did you. not know that history. <laughs> the thing oh, they wow. don't tell I us. love that. I love that. Because we're not telling it. When we the tell thing, it, it's powerful. The... When we're not telling it, it's good. You yes. feel good about it. But it's something about it that still feels very like, this is how you see me. Right? When we tell it, it's yes. real. It's yeah. powerful. So I just want to say and also, some... when we tell it, you're a woman. You're a woman in the fullest sense of the word. Like you're a, all the parts of you that make you human and feeling. Your um, the bravery of Harriet, the emotionality of Harriet, the sexuality of Harriet, the desirability. All of those things now get put into play, which I never even knew that her. I never even knew that. Like revelation time. You know, I just, I just want to say as I look at this sorry ass gap ad again and I'm sort of looking at it and I wonder what I always wonder which is how many people did this go through in your you know your organization how many people looked at this image and didn't see that there was something really wrong with it Um, even if you couldn't articulate or language it around race this little girl looks really sad and really uncomfortable and so I'm sort of wondering like you know, we have these brilliant responses, and they're always responses to these moments. But I, I would like to see some of us collect a check and infiltrate some of these companies <laughs> and be like, you know, before we drag you on Twitter, maybe you want to just have a consult with us first and pay us handsomely to do it. Because I'm just amazed <laughs> that this could have actually, like, how many people had to see this sign off of it on it and just go, okay, yeah, I think this is good. Like, and, really? Yeah, and we're not in an era where the dragging by black Twitter is an alien concept. Like, it is now a thing <laughs> that has been established globally. To be dragged on Twitter is to really have a particular experience. Just ask Paula Dean. There's so many people you could ask who understand that intimately. Why would you even, why would you even in the 21st century? But I think it... It is that thing that Manifa spoke about. The power of the counter to the counter continues. The insistence on having people occupy, occupy, having black women, black girls occupy this particular space. Insistent, unrelenting narrative, even when you can sit here and say, who on earth, how many layers saw this before you said, yes, that's okay. And so now you're going to be dragged long and 
farcically and hilariously and then there'll be the the usual apology or whatever there will be but why not just do the prevention piece and not do it at all why not just do that right why not just do that right but um just thinking about serena when it comes to serena and, and the world of tennis uh, we know that being a winner on the court doesn't necessarily equate to being a winner in the dollars department. I didn't know that although Serena Williams is the number one tennis player in the world and she's literally changed the game. And yet uh, it is the white tennis player Maria Sharapova, who's the highest paid female af- athlete. And Sharapova has just admitted to failing a drugs test. So just take a listen to Maria Sharapova's admission. I wanted to let you know that a few days ago I received a letter from the ITF that I had failed a drug test at the Australian Open. I did fail the test and I take full responsibility for it. I thought it was very important for me to come out and speak about this in front of all of you because throughout my long career I have been very open and honest about many things and I take great responsibility and professionalism um, in my job every single day. And I made a huge mistake. And then in Ebony, senior editor Jamila Lemieux wrote about reactions to the Sharapova revelation and imagined reactions had this been a revelation about the brilliant Miss Williams. Can you imagine if Serena Williams failed a drug test? What would have happened all over the world? And I wonder what you will think about that, the idea of wage inequality within this sport and this admitted disadvantage. And of course, I've had to coin another phrase, and that is to Sharapova, a verb, to gain unfair advantage through illegal means. Using it in a sentence, you didn't earn that, you did a Sharapova. <laughs> I thought that was necessary. Um, and so we slay. We are magic. We rock. Ghana girls rock. Niger girls rock. Jamaican girls rock. Brooklyn girls rock. Black girls rock. Yep, we did. If you call a woman, African woman, no go green. She go say, she go say, I be lady yo.
topic two. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month in the United States um, and Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It's an annual campaign to raise public awareness about sexual assault and to educate communities and individuals on how to prevent sexual violence. Each year, during the month of April, state, territory, tribal and community-based organizations, rape crisis centers, government agencies, businesses, campuses and individuals plan events and activities to highlight sexual violence as a public health, human rights and social justice issue and to reinforce the need for prevention efforts. Back in 2009, President Obama became the first United States president to proclaim April as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And this month as well, U.S. pop star, a U.S. pop star called Kesha, is currently embroiled in an allegation of sexual assault against her music producer, Dr. Luke. And Kesha appealed to a court to, uh, and a judge to release her from her music contract with the label while the legal case winds its way through court in order to allow her to continue to work. The judge refused. And the pop star has just recently revealed that she was offered her freedom only if she recanted her claim that she was raped and publicly apologized. Now, here's UK artist and multiple award winner Adele at this year's The Brits Award, accepting her award as Best Female Artist of the Year, acknowledging her record company as one that appreciates women and offering public support of Kesha. Thank you so much. Um, To come back after so long away and be so warmly received is really lovely. Thank you so much. And to all the other girls that are nominated, thank you for letting me be in your company. You're all incredible, you're all amazing, and it's a privilege to be alongside you. I'd like to take a quick second just to thank my management and my record label for embracing the fact that I'm a woman and being encouraged by it. And I'd also like to take this moment to publicly support Kesha. Thank you very much. So let's talk about this issue of using freedom as a bargaining tool to silence allegations of sexual assault. Joe Morgan, let me start with you. I work adjacent to the music industry for a really long time as a music critic. And so um, this kind of dirty is just typical in an industry that, you know, part of like their perks package used to be to like supply strippers and prostitutes, you know, to get uh, rotations on, on radio stations. So, you know, the music industry has a deep and pervasive and longstanding culture of misogyny um patriarchy is the is the reign of the day um and women regardless of if it's an artist to executives are kind of told are told you're lucky to be here in some ways um put up or shut up you know tolerate what's going on and if not you're replaceable so um Kesha's motivation to speak out like her ability her stance that she was a going to speak out and not be silenced i don't think people really even realize um because she's seen as like you know a white female star that the kind of climate that she did that in it's it's pretty monumental um but i think that women are, you know that um bargaining uh freedom for silence around sexual assault is probably consistent with how we deal with sexual assault in this country, period. Even if it's not your actual economic release from um, from a label or a contract, um, we tell women who are sexually assaulted that it will just be easier for you if you don't say anything in multiple ways all the time. You know, this is what happens when 
women report assault cases and the police are not sensitive about how they're doing the interviewing. Uh, when cases of rape are reported in uh, even New York City public schools and administrators turn a blind eye and really encourage, you know, send young girls home and say, okay, you know, you're not really suspended, but just take a, cool, you know, a cooling off period. Silence is always the thing that um, is rewarded, and speaking out is the thing that puts um, a victim in jeopardy. So I just see it as really typical. Monisa Dandele, closing thought to you. Yeah, and here we're talking about uh, the example we use is a woman who is popular. She's a pop star. She has um, agency and access to media to, to highlight this story. But we hear stuff all day, you know, about women, teenage girls. There was a high school basketball team in California that refused to play a game because the coach was abusive and, and sexually harassing students. He made them feel very uncomfortable. And they were suspended from school for refusing to play a game. And this was in the wake of the football team at Mizzou refusing to play um, based on racism on their campus. So we see the difference in how the women athletes who are, who are less known, um, who are, of course, women and, and were all black girls, were treated when they raised these issues of sexual assault um, in, in a climate where, look, the society won't even protect the children. You know, these weren't college, but these were high school children who were saying, this man, you know, is making us feel uncomfortable and is touching us inappropriately and we don't want to play the game. And the high school is like, to their championship girls team, if you don't play, you're suspended from school. So it's, 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 it's top down and it's a dangerous environment and it feeds into all of the, the, the violence that our girls experience, sexual assault on campus, because it's, it's a green light, it's a pass, it's, a, it's okay, it's we don't own our bodies. What's important are the business deals, what's important are the games, all of these things supersede, you know, your body. That's the message that it sends. And so if, if people on that level can't get justice, just imagine the horror that's faced by just everyday girls, especially in poor communities. It's disgusting. I'm really heartened, though, um, about the young girls choosing to come together and to collectively stand beside one another and um, speak out with their collective voice. I yes. mean, just as a piece of... Um, um, community strategy that's really really powerful so that it wasn't one girl who stepped out of the basketball team stepped out of her, her team and approached the authorities but they went as a community and I think even that that is powerful and the idea that they would be suspended is where the rest of the community has to step up stand in and say oh hell no fire him you don't touch the girls like hands off the girls but him out Never know about the moves we've been making
me down, down. None of them can mess with the style. It's why the whole of them are follow where I go. Got the beat killer, no say is I go. And we're taking you back like the eyes up. Come again with the fire. That's your hour. Thank you to Joe Morgan and Manisa Bandele. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production Team, Sound Editor Mark Torres, Distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armar. Put the spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk, we're smart, is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.